Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Oliver here this week. Shared scooters cluttering up the streets is one of the things that I, in my enthusiasm for the other benefits that micromobility offers cities, have largely ignored. I was initially dismissive of why scooter parking infrastructure could or should be a business. I met the Swift Mile team at the first micromobility conference in January, and over the last year, Colin has convinced me that maybe I'm wrong and that they're onto something. Swift Mile builds scooter parking infrastructure, and I'm coming around to the importance of the work that they're doing for the ecosystem. I found this conversation really enlightening, and I really hope that you do too. Before we jump into the episode, I want to thank our sponsor and a project that I'm very excited about, Helium. There's a whole world of devices out there, from parking meters or scooter parking infrastructure to packages, bikes and more. All of these things should connect to the internet, but Wi-Fi and Bluetooth have a limited range, and cellular data plans like those used to connect the scooters can be pricey. Wouldn't it make sense for all of these devices to have their own internet? A network that works just for them so they can stay connected anywhere, anytime? Helium is building the People's Network, the world's first peer-to-peer wireless network. Powered by Helium's LongFi technology, this network enables companies to connect devices and collect data in ways never before possible by delivering secure, ubiquitous coverage at a fraction of the cost of cellular. With a range 200 times that of Wi-Fi and very low power requirements to maximize battery life, it's helping micromobility companies keep track of their fleets and vehicles. I've followed the project for years, and I'm very excited about what they're doing at Helium. It's an honor to have them sponsor the podcast. Check them out more at helium.com. And now, here's the episode with Colin. And we're back. Welcome to Micromobility. We have Colin Roche with us today from SwiftMite. How are you doing today, Colin? Doing fantastic. Excited to be on the show. I appreciate you having me. You're most welcome. This is one of my pet loves is talking about infrastructure. I think it's it's one of these ones that oftentimes gets neglected in the discussion or in the excitement around vehicles and, and capital financing and everything, especially around the, the shared micromobility business model. So, hey, look, what I thought maybe what we could do just really quickly is kick off with a little bit about SwiftMile and what you guys do. Yeah, that'd be great. So SwiftMile started in 2015, way back before a lot of people were thinking about this stuff, centered around this concept of wanting to be basically the gas station of the future, a smart charging system for light electric vehicles. We looked at all the different vehicles at the time. We called them PETs, personal electric transports, kind of a catchy name. And we foresaw that there's going to be scooters and bikes and segways and all these things that are light and electric. And we didn't want to be the vehicle We wanted to be the charging platform because there's no free lunch. These things have to charge. And with that, what would you build to have a system like that? So we set about building that at the time because you'd look at your window, you wouldn't see these things today, which is called micromobility. We stitched together our system. We built a system and then we married it with an electric bike. We had this turnkey electric bike share system. And that's really where we got started. And I think we're fortunate in that we started to kind of iterate and do all of our all of our different designs on this uh, way back when. And that was successful. It wasn't like viral, but it was successful. It's a Google, it's a charge point. We're right outside Tesla's front headquarters. 
at the Santa Clara VTA, we have a demonstration project going with them early days. And so while that was happening, we were getting really good at figuring this stuff out. It's got to be universal, so you got to detect the different batteries, and you got to track this stuff. You got to send alerts from the system up to a dashboard. But then a funny thing happened along the way to the dance. Bird came out with scooters essentially in January 2018. To us, that was like, oh, this is fantastic because that's what we had been saying is going to happen. We joke until then it was kind of like Don Quixote tilting at windmills until you actually saw these things and the, and the explosive usage of them and the impact they have, total disruption. We weren't that relevant. But then when that came out, you know, our system is 100% extensible to any form factor. So just like what we said in the early days, um, today it happens to be scooters, tomorrow it'll be something else. And so just to clarify, when you say charging platform, what do you mean? Yeah, so, so we are a parking and charging platform that we place in high use areas for micromobility and now also for private users. So for example, in a dense area with scooters where, where there tends to be a lot of clutter and there's a lot of issues with cities, we place our stations in those areas for like a semi-dockless system where the scooter user comes up, parks it and then plugs it in to charge it. And then with that, then we monetize off the operator in various ways. And so it, it solves a lot for the cities, it lowers operating costs for the for the operator, and it gets better experience for the user because you know these are like a mobility. So just so I clarify, so you built the parking effectively like a, as you say, semi-dockless. The scooters themselves are still dockless, but then in a highly pedestrianized area, you can build this. And so would you take over like car parks and stuff like that? Is that generally speaking where these things are put? That's kind of the secondary piece. Really where we're getting, especially, you know, let's talk about infrastructure. We're getting places in the public right of way, like downtown Austin, and there's places in, or in Pittsburgh or in San Diego and Salt Lake City. You'll see a lot of these different areas that scooters just tend to congregate, right? Outside of eateries, outside of bus stops, transit areas. And so not in the parking lot where the cars are, but actually in the busy areas where these tend to end up. And so that makes sense to place our stations there because the scooters are generally there, but they're kind of scattered around. And so now we offer a charging solution there to decrease the amount of cars having to come and pick them up and all the things associated with that. You're kind of hitting a couple of birds with one stone there. So in some ways you're dealing with the charging because it means that the, those vehicles in theory have to be picked up less for charging. And at the same time, you're helping clean up clutter. So who's purchasing these systems and having them installed at the moment? So there's there's two pieces to it. So if we do it in the public right away, where we are truly a universal system, and, and this goes back to what cities of the future really want, they want an agnostic player, which is what our system does, what most cities are going to want. And so in that instance, the city gives us permission because we're doing a, obviously a, a, something of value to the city. And then we monetize off the operators there. So we'll charge them a fee. But now we also have added a digital signage it's called digital out of home, where now we can post not just ads to make revenue, but then we can also post transit schedules and public service announcements for the cities. Another reason for them to give us space in these areas. In private settings, let's say you're a lime or a bird or a spin, what you do is we brand this, your company's logos and everything, and then it's powered by SwiftMile, kind of like Intel inside. And then you can place this on hotels, which are a fantastic place. Colleges are really taking off. And also outside different commercial tenants and like places like shopping malls. So in that instance, what they do is they pay an upfront fee to offset our cost to install, and then they pay a monthly amount. Great. And so for these things that are installed, as you say, universal in the public right of way. So it can be, say, for example, you've got three or four different operators in a city. You might have Jump and Bird and, and Lime. Forgive me. I was under the impression they all have different charges. How does that work? I'd say this is a little bit of luck, but 
What ended up happening with the market is so everybody used gig workers in the beginning, right? That's how everybody got to the got to this kind of level. Brilliant idea. And so all of the different operators, they either sold or they issued these charging bricks, just like you would connect into your laptop, but this is for a, a scooter. And so they use the same what's called barrel jack, the connector that connects into the scooter. And so what we did is our system basically has that same connector. And the reason why they continued with that, if they all of a sudden go and change that, they're going to disrupt their own sort of supply chain of charging because it's still a lot of them use gig workers. You know, that's a big part of their market. And so the idea is, why would you change kind of like the way cell phones used to be, right? These used to have different chargers. It makes more sense to just have a universal charger. At the same time, that's the easiest thing for us to change because we're now moving into private users, which is a massive market and cities want to see us address it, where if you own your own scooter or electric bike, you can plug in as well, in which case you'd have your, your own adapter. Right. So so you would come with your own adapter for the universe. Because I mean, Joe Krause, the president of Lime, when he was in Berlin, made the call to the industry that we develop hardware standards. And I believe that charging is one of those things that everybody is sort of, generally speaking, it kind of makes sense that we would move to work the equivalent of a micro USB, as you say, about the, the cell phone charging. It makes it a lot easier if everybody does it. Yeah, for sure. We're on that same board with them for the SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, and they're defining the taxonomy of it. So, so yeah, he's absolutely right. At the moment that, as far as I understand, that hasn't happened. And when I think about private sector, so I have a boosted rev, for example, which I love and adore. And I think it's one of the coolest scooters out. But I'm fairly sure that the, the charging uh, requirements for it will be different to, for example, the Segway standard or an Okai, which most of the shared operators will use. Is that correct or am I missing out there? Well, you're missing out in the sense that your actual cable that you plug in, like now your battery might be bigger, which is fine because that's part of our technology. We detect that. But your actual connector that you connect into your scooter, it's very likely the same barrel jack that's used on the shared scooters. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, if you look at it, as a matter of fact, if you took a picture of it, I can tell you right away. Now, Boosted, I don't know because they don't have any shared vehicles as far as I know, but most of the other guys sell private and public are shared. And so the idea is why would you change that? There's like, it wouldn't, there's no benefit to change it because you already have it and it works. And a lot of people have these chargers already. Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. I would imagine, and in the sense that I get, right, talking to a lot of regulators, but also people who are in the space, and as we think about what the explosion of shared micromobility has been like, the conversation, I think, more than the conversation around, okay, the actual operations of the business, because oftentimes that's not seen by most consumers. They don't think about the fact that these, obviously, these scooters need to be charged. Oftentimes, the collections happened at night when they don't see it, and then they're just out there in the morning, and then they're all nicely lined up until something blows them over but the big problem that seems to be around social acceptance has been to do with one clutter and then two where do they safely operate and it strikes me that what you offer is a solution around clutter it makes sense if you think about back in the history when the the, the automobile was first introduced to the city everybody complained about you know these bloody cars they're just parked everywhere and then we eventually developed car parking this car just just scared my horse exactly exactly how dare it but it strikes me that what you are building is really the modern day car park building equivalent of you're building the infrastructure around it and then you're also making it worthwhile for, for operators when you're trying to sell to a city what are the kind of the key things that they're finding as to the reasons that they'd be purchasing your system is it predominantly for clutter and clutter reduction or are there other benefits that they can also see with it as well it's kind of some have different needs but i'll tell you one of the major cities here in the bay area i just had this conversation with them on friday 
What's happening, number one, if they already have micromobility, they are under siege. If you go to any city council meeting, for example, the number one thing they talk about, certainly in the Bay Area, it's homelessness. The second thing is scooters and like how to address it. Because 50% of the people love them and 50% hate them. And those people that hate are really pushing cities to say, what are you doing about it? You let this beast unleashed and we see all the value it brings, but what are you doing to solve it? So I'll tell you the things that they look for. There's like really kind of three big ones. One, you're totally right. I mean, just the clutter alone for social acceptance, it looks horrible when these things are knocked all over a corner of a street or they're scattered. And, and, and oftentimes they're knocked over when people don't, they go up to use them and they can't because there's no charge. So it's unfortunate, but a lot of people go, oh, screw this thing and they knock it over. So the clutter is one thing. Um, we coined this term, bringing order to the chaos that rings true with cities. The second thing is, and here's kind of the dirty underbelly of this, and cities are fully aware of this now. If you have like 15,000 scooters out there, which some cities have, that's basically 15,000 vehicles that have to be touched by somebody in order to put power into that. And so that means there's a tremendous amount of people driving around, which negates all the great effects of less congestion and smog and emissions and stuff from the scooters. But now you've got all these vans driving around, oftentimes blocking sidewalks or double parking, creating more kind of incremental traffic and so cities really want to start seeing something and what can you do to reduce that side of the business that's another big one and then the other part that that cities really want to start to move the needle on is everybody's trying to reduce SOVs single occupancy vehicle trips and so they want to see this as kind of a first last mile type solution when you're able to put these in like a mobility hub which is what cities are really adopting now, like you put them outside a train stop, a bus stop, or, or subway or ferry, people are drawn to it in the sense that I know that's where I could go and get this, this light vehicle to take me a mile or two. And so cities really want to start placing these strategically in areas instead of you just hoping that there's something there. This is like a destination for them. Right. And as you say, if it is universal infrastructure in the sense of you can have all the different operators aggregated into that one spot, then it saves you having to open your Lime app and your Spin app and your Jump app in order to work out which scooter is that you just go to wherever that is and you kind of work out whichever scooter is there and then you'll be able to take it. No, that makes sense to me. All, all of that makes a lot of sense to me. To your point around how you started out as a bike share operator or at least doing electric bike, effectively like a semi-docked electric bike system, there's a very interesting parallel here, which I'll, if you will indulge me for a moment, which is I used to work on Uber Pool in the Uber Pool team in Australia. And we were looking at trying to do Uber Pool and how to make it work. And as we were doing it, we were following on with a lot of the research as to what was happening with Uber Pool internationally. There was the team in the States had really kind of come along with like, hey, look, Uber Pool kind of works, but we think it will really work if we can one, increase vehicle occupancy. So we get more people into the vehicles. And then two, if we start aggregating all of the people into like specific pickup locations, and then if we time batch them, if we put them into groups of people, and then every five or 10 minutes, this large occupancy vehicle will come past. And it was literally like, guys, we have invented a bus. <laughs> this is preposterous, right? Like, this is very, I mean, it is, there's a lot more intelligence to it and all that sort of stuff. It was very funny. But in some ways, what I kind of feel like you guys are getting to is that you're 
reinventing the bike share. But in theory, it's a lot more intelligent. It's going to have a lot more utility because the vehicles themselves, as you say, it's agnostic to the operator. We can have people come along with bikes. We can have people come along with other vehicles and in theory will fit into this place. But you're ending up with mobility hubs, but then allowing the kind of the creativity of the market and the intelligence and everything else that comes to this to be able to be deployed into that space to be able to create a lot more value for the customer. You hit it on the head. I mean, and for us, that our thesis holds true from the very beginning of we want to be the infrastructure. We want to be the gas station. That's solely what we're focused on. It's similar to like, why didn't Ford develop, become Shell or, or develop their own gas stations? And why didn't Shell develop their own vehicles? You kind of got to do one or the other and be really, really good at that. And so the kind of the beauty of the way the market's evolving is there's so much innovation taking place that whatever that vehicle is that is put out there by these different operators, it should have a way to charge without the current method of someone physically driving around to either insert a battery or to take it off the market for 12 hours. And a lot of damage happens at that moment when you throw these things in and out of vehicles. There's got to be a better way. And that's that's hopefully what I think people are seeing with what we've done. Yeah. Hey, I want to talk to you about a bit about pricing. I don't know how much you can reveal about how much you charge operators, but I am very curious about what you charge to a city who wants to install this infrastructure, mainly because I think, at least until now, a lot of them have viewed the scooter or the shared micromobility plays as being this free thing that they've they've got given to them as a city. In fact, they've almost viewed it as a revenue source, despite the fact that it offers a lot of utility that's very low impact relative to everything else comparable to for example cars or if you wanted to move other masses of people you oftentimes have to invest tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into infrastructure i think that's changing and i'd love your your views on that about whether or not cities are turning around and saying hey these things are actually maybe here to stay we also should probably invest in some infrastructure especially around the parking infrastructure and then the kind of the wider conversations that are happening and reverberating out from there around these shared micromobility vehicles. Have you seen a change in that in that conversation? Yeah, yeah. So the market's really only two years old. And if you look at specific to scooters, we've been around for five. So just the amount of change, like it, like when we first started, we would go into, I'm from Palo Alto originally, we'd go into Palo Alto City Council and we'd be trying to pitch this system and the old way is you go there, there's an RFP they're about to put out. They got to decide what to put in the RFP. And then you got to stay on top of them as, this, as to why you, you think you're the best. And, and then they're going to put out some funding for that. And then you got to bring some other funding for, as a sponsor. And it's just this long two, three year cycle. And it was just kind of old, old, old school. As you, you know, if you ask Brian Respecki, I'm sure he knows it much better. Is that, that's how they started with their social bikes. But when, when the e-bikes came out that were dockless, it was a total game changer. And so now it's flipped. And what the micromobility world did to cities is they went out and just said, hey, can I just, can I just deploy? We're not going to charge you a thing. And obviously cities really like that. And these things happen quick. And, but obviously it happens so quick, there's a lot of issues around it that they got to figure out. So the, now with the cities and like what we do, it's kind of similar model from the dockless scooter operators is we say, look, we're not going to come out here and charge you guys a thing. What we want in return for doing this public benefit that's going to help create a much more healthy ecosystem for micromobility. Cities love the good parts of micromobility. There's no refuting that. And so to make it better, this is how we operate. And this is what we do. Decrease people driving around. There's more uptime for scooters. All, the, all those things we talked about. And so what we say in return for that. We need to put these where the scooters are. And those happen to be 
in the street furniture zone, oftentimes, in between the curb and the sidewalk, these coveted rights of way. And so by us now doing that and getting, that's like a freedom to operate. We're universal and we can work with all the operators. So the cities, because they're already used to that part of the scooter operators not charging them, as a matter of fact, the scooter operators pay them oftentimes a percentage of whatever it is their revenues. Oh yeah, or a per-ride tax. I mean, per-ride, yeah. yeah. It depends on the city, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's almost kind of like the cannabis industry, right? They're going to find many different ways to tax it. That's gold for us because that is, you can't just go to a city and say, hey, let me set something up right here. They're like, what do you, you got to be doing something that is needed. So that's kind of the piece with the cities. Now, the reason why they're not looking at this, is this going to be here? Is it not going to be here? The demand on these things is off the charts. I know it's a little wonky, like who are going to be the main players and the funding, but none of that would be here without this unbelievable usage that these things get. Yes. Oh, yeah. The latent demand oh, yeah, that's been that's been unlocked by simply having these vehicles turn up. Just to clarify, so you're saying that you deploy these systems in t- for a city, but you don't charge the city anything. So effectively, they get this infrastructure for, for, for no money up front. They don't have to pay for it. You got it. And so that, that's in the public right. That's in our public deployments. Private, it's different because we're working independent. For sure. Okay. One further thing, too, that we're, we're about to demonstrate here down at Edwards Air Force Base, still a government organization, is when we add solar to this, this is kind of a fourth thing that cities have is they're, they're very, they're looking out for sustainable things and they want, they have sustainable goals. When you make this solar, and then that means that the scooters are getting charged by the sun through our system, that makes it 100% renewable power transit. There's really not many options out there for doing that for a car. You know, you might have this massive carport that's charging some vehicles, but the reality is, is this thing is powered by the sun and people are getting around. I mean, that, that really checks a lot of boxes for cities. That does. Okay. There's obviously a cost to these systems for you in deployment. So you make your money back via fees to the, to the operators within the city. Correct. Do operators have to agree that you are going to come into the city and that they'll have to pay you for this? Or do they just do these things just start getting deployed and then people get told they have to put these things into the parking corrals and therefore effectively operators have to pay you? It's literally evolving as we speak. So we're about to do our first big citywide deployment with Pittsburgh. We're part of a coalition or consortium of a bunch of different folks like Zipcar, Waze, Spin. When we go out there and we're in the public right away, in the beginning, what we're going to do there, we're also going to do this in, in Austin and a few other places. Come on, come off. If you're a private user of these, charge your scooter. If you're an operator, charge it. We're going to let them see how it dramatically reduces their operating costs. And so it just makes a lot more sense when you place these in the areas that your asset is already there is to go ahead and use the system because then you can see for yourself how it's a quarter or a fifth of the cost of what it would cost for normally to charge something. So from there, we don't want to make this punitive whatsoever. So then therefore, it's easy to strike a deal with an operator. We already have some lined up in all those different cities I spoke. But there are cities now that are saying, wait, we actually, in these really busy downtown type areas, we're going to require that you park in a system such as ours. Because the alternative is, is already a big problem. Back to the city council meeting, people are picketing. In that instance, cities want to see operators that are willing to adapt with the market. And that's not saying it has to be 100% docked, and we're not advocating for that at all. It just makes sense. It's like kind of good for them, good for us, good for the city. Yep. No, that makes sense to me. I mean, can you give me an indicative price of what you might charge an operator per charge per se? Yeah. I mean, I could give you rough only in the sense because a lot of it's dependent on the size of their fleet versus someone else's fleet in the geographic area. But I can give you kind of a rough, give or take. 
the market today, and the variance is getting bigger, it costs about 6 to $9 to charge a scooter. Some say high on the 9, some say low on the 6, somewhere in there. Per day. Yeah, to have somebody pick a vehicle up and charge it. The way we look at this is, okay, that, that's one cost. The other big cost is, what does that do to the longevity of your scooter? Because when you throw these in a, in a van, you've probably seen it, 20 on top of each other, brake levers, brake cables get pulled, all that. So we, we have this return on investment calculator. And the way it, it, it sort of nets out is compared to spending 6 to $9 charge per day, you're looking at like $2 per day. But then there's also this side of what does it do to you and your, the relationship with the city? That one's a little more hard to quantify. But cities like to see operators trying to do things to improve their operational excellence. And so that, that one's sort of like a tangential one. You could say basically about almost 60 bucks a month, two bucks a day compared to what they're paying today, which is about six to nine. That makes sense. One of the challenges that I see with the new scooter, even the new scooters don't have the level of intelligence, for example, within their GPS or their positioning system to know that they are within a parking corral. And this is one of the things that has come up multiple times whenever I've talked to council members has been, we want to ensure that any of these shared scooters end up parked and within the sort of designated parking zones. And I'm like, well, I would like that as well. But the challenge is that at the moment we can't tell because of the basic level of intelligence on the vehicle. If something is within this two by four meter box that you've drawn with some paint on the street with your system it sounds like it's a little bit more intelligent plus they get plugged in so is there a way that you can tell if a scooter is plugged in and then send that back to an operator so that that ends a ride per se and that that can be verified as it is now within a designated zone yeah yeah no that that's that's a great question and so you know that that's obviously a, a big part of this not just us, but if you tell people what to do, will they do it? So there's a couple of ways. Number one is obviously the incentivization side, which we're just about to roll out. We're one of the largest train operators in Europe. We've got multiple vendors that are going to, or operators are going to be part of this pilot where we're placing these at train stations and then we're placing them in, in sort of the, the city centers. So you kind of get that surge in the morning and then it kind of reverses itself. And so what you do there is we have open APIs that we work with the operators on. So that might say... When you're done riding, if you park in this place, we will give you some form of a credit. That might be a free ride. That might be a dollar off your ride, whatever that might be. There's already precedent for that. I think Scoot did a really good job early days here in San Francisco of providing some form of a compensation for plugging this in. That tends to work very well. We've already done it, tested it. And, and we saw this when we first did our, our first deployments in, in some busy areas is Turns out there are good citizens out there. Like we're not too different than a bike rack. If you have a bike and you pull up to a building and you see a bike rack, you're probably likely to put this in the bike rack. So that 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 accomplishes step one, right? You've now placed this in the bike rack. Now, in order for for me to give credit to Oliver, so if it gets plugged in, we can detect that whose scooter that is. But now, in order for us to give for them to know to give credit to Oliver. That's the big question. And so the way we do that is no different than how you end your ride now. You know, with a scooter, you have to take a picture of it. Using that same QR reader, you take a picture of the QR code on the station, and that says, ah, Oliver just plugged this into bay number two. We could send commands back, and, and we might now say, all right, this scooter only has 20% charge, so take this off the app, turn the light red, and so this thing's charging. But now they know, okay, give the credit to Oliver. He did, he did the actual plug-in. That part is still not quite quite so frictionless, but is certainly getting a lot better than it than it has been in the past. And I'll add one thing to that. I'll add one thing to that. 
So we have two kind of things. We have one today, our system's called the Oasis, comes in from the wild, takes a sip, takes a break type thing. But our second version is it's really, it uses contacts. And so you can just come up, it gets inserted in, there's an adapter you put on the front of the scooter. You're not plugging anything in. It detects it immediately. It reads it. Not when we call the full Monty. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you said you can also do private scooters. So I have a I have my own private scooter. It has this particular dongle that you can put in. Is there also a lock system to there as well? So can I lock my? Because I worry about going out and just leaving my scooter unlocked on the street. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's two ways we go about that. For one, you know, a lot of scooters now have a lock two point on the scooter, especially private ones. Because early days, it was hard to lock a scooter. Like you had to kind of put it through the front wheel and the little gap in between the wheel and the, and the suspension. Well, a lot of them now just come with an actual, like a ring or an area on the scooter itself so you can lock it. So what we have is we have a bar on our system that you can lock that scooter to. So if you have your own lock already, that's the easiest, purest form for you to secure your own scooter. We have another version that we're rolling out in the summer here where we have an actual lock mechanism itself. So you insert the scooter, you just slap this bar, it locks it, and now that scooter's locked. And in order to unlock it, you scan the code and then it locks and and then you're on your way. Yeah, that serves a lot of things. And then so for a private user, so you charge the same rates for private operators versus public operators? No. So meaning if Oliver pulled up to with his scooter and you plugged in our system. No, like right now, the way we're positioning it and, and you know, that market is really, it's kind of funny. It's like this big market that nobody really has addressed yet because everybody's focused on micromobility as, as they likely should be. So that market, like what we're doing in certain markets is we're going to allow them to charge for free for 45 days, use the system and all that. And then after that, if this is part of your daily commute, which likely it is, because if you bought one, well, then that means that that's probably part of your regular habit. It's not too different than like a zip car where you pay a monthly access fee to charge vehicle. But when you add digital signage, which we, it's called the Falcon X, our system that you can put these digital signage there, that's different. What we say to the cities is we're going to support the private user. You allow us to place ads on our system. It's going to be free for the private user because we want to show them and we want to embrace more ways to get people to use micromobility, whether it's private or, or shared. And cities love that. That's awesome. How do you think about loading for the different stations? I mean, obviously, there's a set of calculations that you do beforehand where you say this system is going to be highly pedestrianized or this is in a highly pedestrianized area. We think we're going to have 50 slots on the system, for example. How does that work? How are you, how are you thinking through that when you talk to a city? Yeah, no, it, it's we've spent a lot of time kind of coming up with the right kind of ratio. And, and there's a variance, right, depending on on really the, the city and some embrace it more than others. But an easy rule of thumb is like three to one. So for every three scooters, there's one parking spot. And the reason why it's a lot different than if you're looking at like motivate type system where that's that's pure docked, you know, in many instances, you can't end your ride unless you dock the system. And that's where there's a big rub, right? You, you did this, you got on it, you enjoyed the ride. Well, now all the stations are taken up, so I can't park this. And now it's become a liability. Now I got to go find a place a few blocks away or, or whatever. Because the scooters are already dockless, what happens is, and, and we've seen this at one of our largest usage areas in, is at a big university in Florida with, with the private operator. And so what happens there is, is people just, they just leave the scooter next to the station. And when oftentimes the, the workers for the company, they're out there already kind of doing things, then they'll just place the scooters in when 
when one opens up. So you're, in other words, you're not left in the lurch like you were before. You just still do what you normally do because it's a semi-dockless. It's not required that you put it in the dock. It just you put it next to it and you're fine. You could go on your way. I catch you. Yeah, no, that hey, that, that that makes a lot of sense. And then the final question that I have for you is just around the the kind of the wider conversation that you're having with cities around infrastructure because obviously parking is one. But the big one that I can see that's it's a lagging conversation is around bike lanes or safe infrastructure in which these sort of lower speed, as you say, pets, I quite like that word, personal electric transport, where they can safely operate. When you talk to cities as well, what generally do you see as coming down the pipe for things like bike lanes? And do you think that that conversation has been changing quickly in the last year or are we still up against the same challenges we were two or three, four years ago as we were just in terms of being able to get it through councils and stuff there's been a traumatic shift the micromobility is the tip of the spear but it really kicked open the door for cities to to really look at okay if we have more bike lanes safer bike lanes in particular that are just like as you see in europe that you know berlin's got a fantastic transit system dedicated lanes for bikes you're seeing a lot more cities putting in new dedicating infrastructure dollars to putting in these more safer routes and specifically because they know with safer bike lanes you get more ridership it's just it's a proven fact that's just today i mean we're in the beginning couple miles of this marathon of how micromobility is impacting things. An interesting story based on that about where cities are going is actually told to me by one of the, the, the top oil companies out there. They're having a lot of conversations with cities and they said, you know, Colin, we're sitting on trillions of dollars worth of oil reserves whose value is plummeting by the month because everything's going to be electrified. The revolution will be electrified. And you start to look at cities and everybody knows this and we've seen this from the micromobility data that comes out is cities are growing, right? Two thirds of the world's population will live in large urban cities by 2050. So we know cities are growing tremendously. But what he said is, he's like, everybody knows it's going to be electrified. No one's saying, hey, I got an idea. Let's build an internal combustion engine to move these people around. So the takeaway there is, is all the cities know is that this is going to be electrified. And there's going to be these light electric vehicles that people are going to use to do it. And so in order to make that successful, you have to have the infrastructure. It's not a question of, eh, is this something that maybe we should look at, maybe kind of do some research on? It's just proven. And so cities of the future, this is all baked into their master plans. Like in Berlin, for example, Deutsche Bahn, they're putting $80 billion into upgrading all of their train stations out there to accommodate more options for people to get first last mile and also like how the stations are built and how to accommodate new ride sharing versus parking. So yeah, cities right now are looking at this as a very important part of the future for their growth in order to not have have cars in particular, you know, emission emitting cars be the main source of transportation. Fantastic. So for folks who want to learn more about the Swift Mile system, Colin, how do they do that? Easy part is our website. It's just swiftmile.com. But, you know, we're getting out there. We're, we have over 100 systems out there. We're in the U.S., we're in Europe, we're in the Middle East and growing. And so there's certain cities you can actually go and, and use it yourself. And we're looking forward to just continuing dialogue and you know meeting with thought leaders like yourself. And hopefully you'll see us around physically in the streets. Excellent. Okay, brilliant. Hey, well, look, thank you so much, Colin. I'll admit I was a little skeptical, but I'm convinced as we think about the wider businesses of people thinking about how they can support this, both the rise of micromobility in the shared space, but also in the own space as well. Parking was one that I perhaps maybe overlooked, and I certainly feel like this has been a very enlightening conversation for me. I'm trying to work out how we can maybe get some uh, systems like like yours down here in New Zealand, because I think that that would certainly help change the conversation and improve social acceptance 
for a lot of the scooter operators. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And, and look, we have to do something down there because that's where I went on my honeymoon and I had the time of my life many years ago. So there's a special place in my heart for, for that whole area. So let's let's make it happen. I uh, appreciate it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, Colin. And we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.